episode 106, Unleashing the Creative Process. Welcome to Gratitude Geek, the relationship marketing podcast, helping micropreneurs find your micro-influencer magic. I'm your host, Candice Rodardi, and this week I'm joined by best-selling author Douglas Rapoport. Originally a classically trained violinist and composer, Douglas studied music at various conservatories in the U.S. and abroad. After receiving his advanced studies degree in film and television scoring, Douglas found a renewed creative outlet as an author. Welcome, Douglas. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Share your unique story. How would you get to where you are? Sure. So I started off um, as a child writing short stories as my sort of creative outlet. Um, and then I went into, at the age of nine, I started studying violin. And that became sort of my main uh, creative outlet. Um, and I really, um, you know, I was a very serious violinist studying, you know, with big teachers and at conservatories and uh, practicing five to eight hours a day. Um, so it really, you know, took over my childhood. And um, as an adult, I ran into some physical um, issues with playing the violin, uh, as well as emotional sort of like breaking up a love relationship when I finally quit violin. Um, and then I sort of rediscovered writing again. I started writing books and uh, four books later, here I am. And, um, excited to talk about the creative process with you. Yeah, it should be fun. So let's talk about your childhood. I mean, nine years old is really young. Did you, yeah. was violin something that you had a passion for or was it something that you were just good at? And so people said, hey, why don't you pursue well, it's this? Sort of both, I guess. It's sort of a funny story, actually, because I went to see the musical Fiddler on, Fiddler on the Roof with my parents. And I thought, oh, my God, that would be so cool to be the fiddler on the roof. I want to do that. Um, and my parents were like, well, we have a piano. Why don't you play piano? And I was like, no, I want to be the fiddler on a roof. So they finally consented and got me a violin. And I ended up being um, having some talent uh, for it. And as a quick, quick fun fact, um, years later, still as a child, actually, teenager, um, I was able to be the fiddler on the roof in a production at a summer music camp. Um, it was like the production that, uh, you know, we spent rehearsing it, you know, the entire summer and then put it on for the parents at the end of the eight weeks um, as, a, as a show. And unfortunately, um, I, I move a lot when I play. And unfortunately, I was balanced on some waiter's trays above the set. Um, and I fell right during as I started playing. And I took the whole set down. Uh, so the whole stage production, like, just crashed. And I, the show had to end. We couldn't continue because there was no set or anything. So, uh, and it happened right towards the beginning of the show. So I basically uh, fit on the roof. I, I, I fell off and, and proved that the show must go on is not exactly true all the time because the show didn't go on in this case. You know, there are so many lessons that can be learned from that story. Yeah, I know, right? So many what, what, when you look back on that story, what's, the, what's your one big takeaway? I don't know. Um, I guess I'm sort of a klutz and I've sort of been a klutz my whole life, but I guess in retrospect, it wasn't really the greatest idea to how they had me above the set on these waiters trays. Um, so sort of, it was the perfect storm of klutziness and, and bad, bad planning, I guess. Yeah. You should always use the appropriate tool for the appropriate use. Waiters yeah. trays are great, but they don't necessarily make good stages. Or no, roofs. not all. It's not. No. It was too small for me to, you know, play on because I move a lot, and then I lost my balance, and there you go. So there's your lesson: always use the right tool. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Let's talk. Let's talk about your journey from composing to writing. 
Was there, was there a a spot along the way that you said, Hey, I just want to do this writing thing or, or, I mean, what happened? Tell us that story. Well, I've always sort of telling a story with music, uh, especially with composing and eventually with film scoring, uh, telling a story in a collaborative way. It was a great outlet, a great way to, to really collaborate on creativity with other people and, uh, stuff like that. But, um, I really found that sort of, not that I'm a loner, but that I, my creative process was best fulfilled when I was by myself and I was writing. Um, and I only had myself to sort of, to report to. Um, and so I really began to really explore my life through writing um, and different things that happened to me. Um, and so I, I found that to be a m- much more fulfilling to me than the than the music was, unfortunately. So let's talk about the creative process of composing versus the creative process of writing. You've already talked about how writing is more of a um, introspective, sure, you know, solo thing. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to create music without having collaboration? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you're writing music just for yourself, or you're just just like writing books just for yourself, um, yeah, t- totally. It can be an introspective in both ways and a solo journey. Um, but when I got, when I transitioned into film scoring, then I was working with directors and producers and, you know, a, a whole team of people and, uh, and, and also video games. I have a video game background as well. Um, and that's, you know, working with the, the developer and the publisher and there's a lot of, um, a lot of people in the kitchen, so to speak, what cooks in the kitchen, as they say. Um, and although that's really gratifying, I, I felt sort of the self the self-fulfilling creative outlet much more, you know, uh, of a process that worked for me. You know, people don't really give it the credit that it's worth, but um, the music in the background when you're watching a film or a TV show or playing a video game really does change the, oh, absolutely. the, the ambiance. I mean, if you've got the wrong score with a movie, you, you cannot deny that made the movie, right? It made the film. It's a character <laughs> and, in the movie, really. Yeah, exactly. And and I, what I just I just did what two bars, and right. everyone recognizes it, even right. though it's I, you know, I'm not, I don't ha- I'm not necessarily a great singer, but you just you recognize that, even though it was just two little bars of me going, dun, 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 you know. <laughs> so it really it was a character. Exactly, the music was a character yeah. in the movie. Exactly. And I think people would notice. People take it for granted because you would notice if the, a movie didn't have music. Um, you would notice this absence. So it's sort of something that needs to be there and needs to uh, enhance the, the emotion, the emotional aspects of the story. Um, but you, you would definitely notice if it wasn't there. And I think George Lucas uh, said something about it being uh, one third of the, one third of the factors that go into making a film. One third might be a little on the low side too. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I don't know if I'm quoting that correctly, so forgive me if I'm not, but it was something basically saying that music was a very important part of the, of the collaboration, collaborative team. So I am such a nerd that I will check for the quote and it'll be in the show notes. Oh, okay. geekcom episode 106. That quote is going to be in the show notes. Hopefully I, I somewhere near nailing it. I don't know. Uh, you were, we're close enough. We're close enough. Um, with your first novel, you were picked up by a really interesting publisher. And mm-hmm. that publisher has a really cool niche. You want to talk about that? Oh, you're talking about my most recent publisher, Viking. Oh, Dog? so you have you have more than one publisher. Okay, yeah, we'll talk I, about that I'm too. Published by different different companies. Um, my most recent book was published by Viking Dog Entertainment, um, which is like a content company uh, out of LA. 
they did a film, uh, they produced a film a few years back called Truth. Um, and, um, and then they're starting to publish books and uh, they have one science fiction book that they published. Uh, and then they found my science fiction book, Dead People, uh, my most recent book, and they wanted to publish that too. So I'm only the second book that this publisher has published. Your first book was about alcoholism? Well, no, it wasn't. No, I think you're thinking about my, my second to last book, which is Reckoner, which is about drug addiction. Okay. Yeah. Okay, alcohol so and drug addiction, sure. How'd you go from alcohol and drug addiction to science fiction and dead people? Sure. So my... Um, my, my first couple of books, my first two novels were coming of age novels. Um, and that's what spoke to me. I, I guess they say most authors, their first book is generally a coming of age. Um, and uh, I guess I didn't get it out of my system. So I wrote another coming of age novel called Reckoner um, after um, being, going, into, going into rehab and um, um, for uh, a chemical addiction I had to, um, uh, tranquilizers, benzos. I was on clonopin for a long, long time prescribed by doctors and I never knew it wasn't a long-term drug. I just, my doctors prescribed it. So I took it and it ended up flipping my central nervous system upside down. And so I had to go into detox at a rehab facility to get the, the clonopin out of my system. And uh, it was such an amazing ex life experience that I turned it into a novel um, called Reckoner, like I said. Um, and so in, the, in my middle book that sandwiched it the, between the two kind of age novels was actually nonfiction memoir about love and relationships and things like that and loss, death, uh, death of a loved one. Um, and um, so my, in other words, my first three books were very personal. Um, and I had this sort of science fiction idea swimming around my brain for the past several years. And I was like, uh, I've never written science fiction. It's something completely new for me. Um, but it seemed like such a great idea when I talked to people that I was like, I have to do it. And I didn't think I, I wasn't sure if I'd be able to do it because I'm not a big science fiction person. I don't really read science fiction either. Um, but the idea was a science fiction idea. So um, I was like, screw it. I'm going to try this, something different. Uh, and so I did it and it was a great experience. Okay, let's go back to the creative process. Sure. You've never done it before. What'd you, how did you get the ideas from out of your head to, to into the book? Sure. So the idea was about really about what if famous people throughout history all lived at the same time, um, all were alive at the same time. Not all of them, of course, it's too many people, but like a random amount, a random selection of, of dead people throughout history. You know, Abraham Lincoln and Oprah Winfrey, well, Oprah Winfrey's not dead, but just sort of, um, you know, this story happens after the, the world has ended from climate, climate change and everything like that. It's years and years later, and these aliens, uh, come to the earth and they decide to to reanimate the earth and repopulate populize it again uh, and so they bring back dead random dead people from all different parts of history um, but they realize when they do that and they create the earth just as it was sort of right before it ended but with all these generations historical time periods involved and historical people involved um, but unfortunately uh, they also bring back bad people you know, serial killers dictators you know bad people that they had no control over bringing back. So it's up to the, my main character in the book who's the former football player to, um, he becomes a hitman hired by the aliens to kill these dead people and, and bad people. Um, and what he gets in return for it is not, not just money, but 
um, you get points for a, a certain amount of points for every dead person, depending on how bad they are. Um, and so if you get enough points, you could bring back a loved one of your choosing who wasn't brought back. And for my main character, Mild McMahon, he wants to bring his mother back. So he's killing all these bad people in order to bring his mother back. So it's sort of a, a crazy story, but I, I'm, a, I'm a blind pager. I'm not someone who outlines or does extensive research or anything. I mean, I do research if I need to, um, but uh, I'm a blind pager in terms of discovery, cre creative discovery. Um, so as long as I have a beginning and end in mind, I can sort of fill in the middle and see what happens to my characters and have that discovery sort of surprise me and then surprise the readers too, of course. Um, so I just started doing it and like the, the characters were so rich and the story was so rich that it sort of wrote itself. I know that sounds really, you know, cliche or easy or whatever, but it was like, it was the easiest book I've ever written because it just sort of, it just sort of came out, you know, splat, you know, um, and I, I was able to just follow the journey of these characters. And there's so these characters are such great characters that I'm turning it into a series a book series. Uh, these characters are so alive that I'm just writing like, I, I can't stop. I, I know there's a disease called, I think, where you're writing and you can't stop, you know, you can't stop writing. I'm not to that uh, extreme, but I am to the point of the creative process where it's just sort of pouring out of me. Well, if the characters are compelling enough, the, the reader wants more. Yeah, exactly. I, I, this recently happened to my husband and I, we found a show on PBS called, um, Home Fires. Uh -huh. And it was really good. It's based on a book, but the mm -hmm. book I think was more of short stories. I haven't read the book, but uh -huh. the TV show had such compelling characters. It was two seasons. And the last episode of the last season was a cliffhanger Oh no! with so many unanswered questions, but the, 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 you know, the company that was ITV, I think is the name of the the company with the TV show who made the TV show, they decided mm -hmm. not to go forward with the show. Oh my God. So you're left with being in love with these characters and wanting sure. to know what happened because there was absolutely no closure. And so the, um, the woman who wrote the original story and the, the dude who wrote the book, the, the scripts for the, for the TV show got together and wrote four more books. Oh, wow. So Great. that we could have closure. And so I am, <laughs> I, I don't read very often. I'm an audio book listener, but I'm going to grab those books because they're not on audio. <laughs> and oh, okay. I want to finish the story because those characters are so compelling. But the same thing happens when we get, my husband and I always, always read, we listen, we have an audible and we listen uh -huh. to the same books. So we pick stories that we can talk about or that we can listen to together. And we, we inevitably find character. We're drawn to the characters and stories and we want more. And so we look for sequels and sequels. So sure, we look sure. for stories that have nine books or 15 books in the series because we want to go on the journey with the character and that we, we want a journey that's more than just one, one book. So yeah, yeah. I, I think it's brilliant if you've got character-driven stories to keep going with them. Yeah, that's generally what I write is character-driven kind of stuff, even though my books are, are very different from each other. Um, so, you know, especially with this latest science fiction one, I'm a character writer. So yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Let's talk about how we can take this creative process of writing a book into to an idea for a business. Because as an author, you are in business. I mean, you're sure. you're a you're a solopreneur, you're a micropreneur. Your your product is your books sure. and the process of putting the books out there. So can you do it by yourself? 
you can, um, uh, but it's it's very it's very hard. I mean, if you're lucky enough to get a publisher like I was, um, um, you know, especially for this most recent book, um, someone who believes in your in your product, like you said, and is and this is willing and excited to sh share it with the world just as much as you are. So you know, it's not just you having to do all the social promotion and um, the podcast and everything else that you do to promote. Uh, book, but uh, you know, you find a good publisher like I did, and you know, he, my publisher is going to Comic Con, different Comic Con events, uh, and promoting my book um, at those conventions. And um, it's really great to have someone on your on your side that's rooting for you and rooting for the success of your product. In which case, this is a book, obviously. Are you, are you going to the comic conventions as well, or just Not a publisher? Yet. I might join him. Um, later in the year it's just all you know with omicron and everything else it's uh it just hasn't been advisable to travel um because you know he's in california and that's where the you know most of the comic-con conventions are so yeah i i'm, I'm sort of not leaving my house either which is why i love podcasting because i don't have to leave my house i can exactly. have a conversation you're in washington dc i'm in western yeah. michigan we can have a conversation we're in the same yeah. time zone i find it really weird that i'm in the same time zone as you and the sun rises so much earlier for you than it does for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Overcoming adversity is something that you've had to do. You were homeless for a while. Talk about that. I was. I was homeless for several months. Um, in 2015, I want to say. Um, sort of a blur now to me. But I was, um, I had been uh, working at a video game company in Paris. Um, and, I, and the company didn't work out. Uh, the company went under and I came back to the United States uh, and I spent some time in, in different cities, Portland and San Francisco, and somehow I ended up in Reno. Don't ask me how. Um, and I realized I had, I had no money and I, I was estranged from my family and from my friends. Uh, and so, and it was during the winter on top of it. So um, I was homeless in, in Reno and uh, sleeping in shelters and uh, I was able to meet a really fantastic guy who was a used car salesman and he had, he managed to get me a, um, a used car which I could sleep in um, uh, and I didn't have to worry about finding the, a bed at a shelter or anything like that so I did that for several months um, and uh, it, was, it was a horrible experience I mean um, and I didn't know how I was going to get out of it but I eventually um, you know, fixed my relationship with my family and was able to move back to the East Coast and, and have a bed again and food and shelter. And it was, I, you know, I definitely don't take that for granted anymore. Reno is an interesting place to be homeless as well. Yeah, it's a very interesting place. It's almost built for it. Well, if I, if, if I am remembering correctly, I believe that Reno is one of the cities that does a good job of making sure that homeless people don't live on the street, that they're, that they, uh, put a lot of, I, I may be wrong. I may be completely off base, but. Um, that might be true in terms of, um, you know, because it's a, you know, people visit, tourists visit, it's a gamble obviously. And, uh, and so maybe, you know, it's not great to have a lot of homeless people around the casinos when they have these tourists coming in to gamble. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I found that if I didn't get to the, to the shelters by a certain time in the afternoon and get a bed, reserve a bed that, you were screwed if you were too late because um, they only have a certain amount of beds. So in that case, um, you know, you had no choice to sleep on the streets or find somewhere to sleep. I, I'm probably completely off base, but Malcolm Gladwell wrote about a city 
that there was one particular gentleman in the city that was homeless and the city ended up spending millions of dollars on his health care because oh. inevitably he'd fall down if you have to go to the hospital sure. or, you know, he had mental health issues. And they found that they saved a lot of money by putting him up in housing and making sure he was fed. Oh, wow. So uh, they mitigated millions of dollars in expenses by creating a home and, and a, a place for this man to eat. Oh, that's um, great. So I thought that was Reno, but I, I, I could be wrong. Malcolm Gladwell, it's in one of his books. You know what? Yeah, yeah. Check the show notes. I'll have figured it out by <laughs> I'll have figured but it out by then. The experience though um, really made me um, believe in people again because people I met a lot of people in Reno and um, who helped me. You know, I was in I was in a casino because it was warm. Um, and someone noticed me that I I was hungry. Um, and they shared their, their, they said they weren't going to eat their meal anymore and, um, and shared the rest of their meal with me because um, they, they knew I was homeless because I guess they overheard me talking to someone else. Um, and just people on buses, you know, like helping me um, find a pawn shop so I could sell my, my jacket uh, just to get some cash. Um, and um, people were just great. I think that humanity, um, we don't always see the the beautiful parts of humanity. Yeah. A lot of times all we see are the, the negatives, but there are some really generous people out there who do amazing things. So a true story that I've shared many times on the show is um, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, a housekeeper showed up at my house for a year, every two weeks for a year. And I never knew who paid for it. Oh, wow. Never knew who paid for it. Got awesome. a year. Yeah. It's just, you know, they just, the generosity of strangers. And I wanted to be able to say, thank you. You know, I wanted to thank the people who, you know, because it couldn't have just been one person. It had to have been a group of people because you don't get, you know, 26 sessions of housekeeping for, right, you know, right. that's, that, that's expensive. Um, but they wouldn't tell me the person, there was one person who coordinated the whole thing and she said, nope, I'm never going to tell you. I'm never going to tell you, you know? That's great. Yeah. So the generosity, people are very generous and they, it's, it's up to us to say, thank you. This is a gratitude thing. If yeah. somebody offers something to you and you don't accept it, it's like saying no. It's like it's the opposite of gratitude when you when you don't accept the generosity of strangers. Yeah. It's the opposite of gratitude. Uh, right. And and the more the more gratitude we spread around, the more, you know, the more wonderful things happen in the world. So thank you exactly. for sharing that 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 story. Um, it's now able to thank everyone who helped me in um, my book Reckoner, which is, you know, the one about alcohol and drug addiction, I was able to, you know, really share with that book, like sort of dedicated to, to people, the people who helped me and thank them um, because I wouldn't have been able to write that book um, had it not been for them. I would love to dig into the whole thing about being addicted to drugs because you were prescribed them. Yeah. Uh, that, that is something that's wrong with our healthcare system, but it's, we could talk about that for hours. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, and I don't blame your doctor and I don't blame you. Right. It's, it's a system that's broken. We have a system that's broken and we have, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of Americans that are addicted to drugs and they probably, a lot of them don't even know it because believe it or not, you know, like you said, we could talk about it for hours, but, um, the people I met there who inspired me to write Reckoner, um, I found out that from, you know, health insurance is another problem in, in, in this country. 
um, that in order to, for the um, health insurance companies in this particular one case of this guy I knew um, to pay for his rehab, he had to get high in the, in the parking lot and come into the rehab center messed up in order for the health insurance company to pay for it. So even though he was trying to be sober and didn't want to take anything anymore, in order for the insurance company to, to cover it, he had to get effed up the parking lot. So he came in effed up. And as long as he come in effed up, then the insurance company would pay for it. So much crazy? wrong. There's so much wrong with that sentence. Yeah. You know, I, I try not to be political on the show because I try not to be political, but I am political and I'm going to make a comment as mm -hmm. a person who is very thankful for my social medicine because I am a metastatic breast cancer patient. Therefore, I am on um, social security disability, uh -huh. and which means I have Medicare insurance. It is the best insurance I've ever had. And mm -hmm. anyone who has gotten a COVID vaccine or has been treated for COVID has also been a beneficiary of social medicine in, over the last couple of years. And that experiment is working. That experiment is working. So we can fix the healthcare yeah, system in the United States. We have a foundation. We can fix this. We just have to get our heads out of our butts and mm -hmm. stop thinking in terms of politics and start thinking right. in terms of people. Exactly. Talking to you, politicians. All right. Exactly. So I don't, I don't do that very often, but I just got on a soapbox. No, <laughs> understandable. I just got on a soapbox. Do you want to talk about losing your parents and how maybe that, how that affected your creative process or how it's it affected funny. the choices that you made? Yeah, it's funny because my, my mother, who was very, very, very close to died in, in 2010, and, you know, they say, you know, time heals all wounds, but just like I proved the show must go on is not necessarily true. Um, I, I realized in my own grief process that it, time doesn't heal all wounds. That's not true. And um, maybe it gets a little easier as time goes by, but you, know, you, you never stop grieving. Um, and it's funny because my most recent book, Dead People, even though it's science fiction and it sounds crazy and all, the, all this stuff, it's actually about grief. Um, because then, like I said, the main character wants to bring his mother back, just like I want to bring my mother back. Um, and the, throughout the, the, the book, there's flashbacks to him and his mother in their previous life before the earth, you know, got destroyed. Um, and so it's really, it's really a book about grief. And my, another book I have, Victim of Circumstance, which was the, the book I wrote sandwiched between the two novels. It's nonfiction, like I said, it's about love and relationships and loss. And I wrote that as a, a dedica you know, dedication to my mother. Uh, I, unfortunately, I wrote it after she died, um, but she was a big part of the of that book. And um, and uh, so I found that. And my father, who died when I was a teenager, he was a big part of my first book, One Day the Weatherman, because uh, that's about a, a father who leaves the house one day and never comes back. And that's sort of how I felt with my father. You died, and you don't you don't come back, obviously. So. Um, each of my books has, has something to do with the loss of my parents. You know, my mom passed away in 2011. You know, it's been 11 years, but mm. I, I still think about her every day. And I make choices in my life based on what would my mom have done. Because mm -hmm. I, I, I base my coaching practice on relationships, right? Yeah. Creating relationships and cultivating those relationships and making sure that gratitude is a foundation of those relationships. And I do that because my mom collected people everywhere she went. She made friends. I mean, she uh, collected people 
And so I learned about, you know, building strong relationships that last for decades from Mm -hmm. my mom. And that's That's never going to leave me. It's never going to leave me. You know, it's, it's never going to go away. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, it's the same thing. I've, I've based my entire coaching practice on the memory of my mom, just like you've written all your books based on the memory of your parents. Yep. So it's it's pretty phenomenal. All right. We need to wrap up. I could talk to you forever. This has been a fantastic conversation. I do want to make a comment though. What I have learned from you about the creative process is that you can have all the ideas in the world, but if you don't execute on them, they don't get done. That's exactly right. And you have executed. Yeah. Written your books. You got, you, you know, when you're homeless, you figured out a way to get unhomeless. I mean, you, Mm -hmm. you've always executed on the, the difference between someone who's been homeless for a few months and someone who was homeless for a few decades is execution. Yeah. And appreciation. I, I would say that too, yeah, sure. you know, and, and, and some of it is choice. Some of it is choice. I actually have a oh. really good, I have a really good friend who's, he calls himself happily homeless. He lives in his car. He has for mm-hmm. years and it is, his, it is his choice, but he doesn't live in Reno. <laughs> he, he doesn't live in Reno. I don't and he's recommend a, Reno if you're homeless. No. And he, yeah, it snows there. Yes. Yeah, snows. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but he, he's, he's a happy, he has his own podcast. He's a great guy. I was actually a guest on his podcast recently. I've known him for, I've known him for over 10 years. He's a fantastic guy. Um, but he, and he, for the entire 10 years that I've known him, he has been homeless. He's living in his car. So, um, he calls it, he calls it his mobile domicile, mobile domicile, and he's happy doing it. It's, it's a happy lifestyle for him. So, um, his name is Rashid Huda, and I'll put a link to his podcast in the show notes because he's a groovy dude. Cool, so cool. Um, I, we, need, we need to wrap up. Thank you for inspiring me today. You, this has been a lot of fun. Oh. I'd, love, I'd love to hear your moment of gratitude. What are you grateful for? I'm grateful for my wife, um, my dog, um, our little family we have. Um, and, um, you know, I'm one of those families where the, we have no children. So the, the dog is sort of, a chi- you know, our, our child or whatever. Um, but, um, the three of us, you know, we've gone through some adversity, uh, being unemployed and things like that. Um, and, um, we're, we're doing great now. And so I'm really grateful for the, for, for them. Thanks for joining us this week for gratitude geek, the relationship marketing podcast, helping micropreneurs find your micro influencer magic. Be sure to check the show notes at gratitudegeek.com episode 106 to link to see all the links to all the groovy resources mentioned today. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the show on Spotify, Audible, iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast players. Our theme music is Track 14 by Rev Brock and Soul Lily. I've been your host, Candice Riardi. Join me on my mission to spread gratitude, sow seeds of appreciation, and harvest a bounty of generosity and kindness. Stay groovy, my friends. Is that, is um, that, am I wrong? Am I, did I do my research incorrectly? 